Well, let's open our Bibles again to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. We'll continue our snail's pace through this paragraph because it is so dense and rich with theology and application. Ephesians chapter 5, we're, we're pulling this passage apart and letting God pull it back together for us in the details and in the whole. We've been looking at what it means specifically to walk with the Spirit of God, walk under control of the Spirit. In chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says that we are to be filled or moved along, controlled by the Spirit. Then he gives some applications of that. One of the primary applications is between husbands and wives, which is the most extended section uh, in the rest of the book after that admonition to be filled with the Spirit. And he talks to the wives, and then he talks to the husbands, and we found ourselves many weeks into looking after the wives, now a couple weeks into looking at the husbands. I think this is our third week of doing that. So, so, so grateful to the Lord for this, and so, so, so convicted by it. Let me read the paragraph so that it's fresh in our minds. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband." No one can deny that we live in a world that fosters a love for ourselves. We hear of self-love, self-care, self-preservation, self-worth, self-esteem. And each of these have the same word at the center, self. What do you do for you is the answer to the question that they provide. I mean, think about this. People take me days. Sounds pretty attractive, actually, a me day. They take me days. And when we take a picture of ourselves, we call it a selfie. Fast food chains tell us you can have it your way. All we ask is that you let us service, serve it your way. That's nothing new. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, realize this, Timothy, 
In the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self. John wrote to his readers in 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Pride. I think it's clear to anyone that the focus on self that's being fostered so intimately by the world in our hearts is really, it's really pride. Pride is that it's just clothes we wear. We, we, we can't run from it. It's just with us all of our lives. The soul's reflex to life is really prideful. And pride comes in two main forms. One you know very well. The other might surprise you. John Piper makes this distinction. He said, boasting and self-pity are manifestations of Pride. Did you ever think of self-pity being a manifestation of pride? Hear him out. Boasting and self-pity are both manifestations of pride. Boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I have sacrificed so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. He goes on to say, the reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be needy. But the need arises from the wounded ego and the desire of the self-pitying is not really for others to see them as helpless, but as heroes. The need self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It's the response of unapplauded pride, end quote. I think he's right, even looking at my own heart and experience. So, loving self is not a way to honor God. Loving self is a prediction of the prophecy that Paul gave Timothy that it will be signified of the last days. Men will be lovers of, of themselves. We are to die to ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. With this in mind then, how do we understand these verses? With everything I just told you, how do we understand this? Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus quoted that very verse in Mark chapter 12, verse 31, when he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor just as you love yourself. But wait a minute, I didn't think we were supposed to love ourselves. And then in the passage before us, add this to it. Verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Wait a minute. We're to love our wives. And the paradigm for that is love them like you love your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes 
and cherishes it. How do we square that circle? How do we make sense of that? It's not as hard as you might think. Nowhere, none of these verses include a command to love yourself. All of them, however, make the assumption that you already do. We don't have to be told to care for ourselves and to love ourselves because we love ourselves and care for ourselves. And not all of that love is inherently sinful, as we'll see. Verse 29, you say, yeah, but what does that mean? For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. What, what about people I've heard who say they hate themselves? Well, let's go back to Piper's definition of self-pity. No one really hates themselves. Really, you just hate the fact that not everyone loves you as much as you do. It's a part of our nature to nourish and cherish ourselves. That's what he says in verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes himself. In and of itself, nourishing and cherishing yourself is not sinful. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Here's the problem. The problem is when we nourish and cherish ourselves at the cost or at the neglect of caring for others, or as we'll see, our neighbor. You remember Paul's words to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing, so comprehensive, do nothing, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your personal interests. He doesn't say, don't take care of yourself. He says, merely, don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others and have this attitude in yourself that also existed in who? In Christ Jesus. Again, Jesus does not say, love your neighbor instead of yourself. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, men, husbands, there is no neighbor closer to you in life and in proximity and in intimacy and in relationship than your wife. So if we are to love our neighbor as ourself, your primary neighbor is your bride, is your wife. The paragraph we're studying here in Ephesians is Paul's application of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, moved along by the Spirit, as I said, controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. Particularly now, he is pointing wives towards that obedience to their husbands and husbands toward that obedience to their wives. Particularly, he points the husbands and wives to God's expectations to please him and to glorify him, and to honor him, and to have a great marriage, knowing that that obedience will give us the greatest happiness and fulfillment if we pursue it. Remarkably, I'm just stunned every time, I, even when we read it a moment ago, he parallels the roles of husbands and wives with the roles of Christ and the church. God intends, as we've seen over and over the last few weeks, God intends by marriage to say something about his son and his church by the way husbands and wives relate to each other. 
And he intends for us to understand something about how husbands and wives relate to each other by how Christ relates to the church and the church relates to Christ. They go back and forth. We keep talking about this as a reciprocating analogy or illustration. In other words, usually something illustrates something else. This is odd in that both marriage and Christ and the church illustrate one another. Marriage illustrates the gospel. The gospel illustrates marriage. Paul begins in verse 24 by speaking to the wife about her half of the metaphor. Then in verses 23 and 25, he transitions to speak about the husband's half of the metaphor. Wives are to discover their distinctive roles as wives emulating the way the church follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their own husbands and everything. Husbands are to ground their love, find their role as a husband in emulating the way Jesus Christ relates to his bride, the church. The husband is the head of the wife, it says, and Christ is the head of the church. His body, he himself is its savior. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we began, began this study of wives and husbands back in in verse 22, we looked at the wife's responsibility in 22 to 24, and then we transitioned a few weeks ago to the husband's that begins in verse 25, and we followed Paul's structure as carefully as we can. Now, I've put this in your bulletin. It should be on the back. You can see the whole structure, the outline, the, the subpoints, so that you kind of have some orientation uh, where we are. There we go. So the big pictures were in the third part of the meaning and extent of the, the husband and his loving headship of his wife. This is the big picture with, without the subpoints. Three applications of a husband's headship. And just so you know where we are, we had a week on number one, a week on number two, and now we're going to do today on number three. And you have those sub points in your bulletin if you want to look back and remember what that is. Three applications of a husband's love, loving headship. So it's really one big section, one big sermon that we divided into a few. Number one, it's a love that loves like Jesus in verse 25, by obeying the example of command, by following the example, by imitating the sacrifice. Then we looked last week that it's a love that sanctifies or makes holy like Jesus, verses 26 and 27. It's a deliberate process toward holiness, a glorious presentation of holiness, and a practical objective of holiness. That brings us now to number three. It's a love that treasures like Jesus. So do you see structurally kind of where we are? I want you to see that we're really in part three of a bigger paragraph. And we'll be isolating our attention on this love that treasures like Jesus, or for us men, his love, a husband's love, treasures like Jesus treasures. It's a love that treasures like Jesus. So when you see the outline today and you see number three, I do know how to count. We don't start with number three, but it's the third point of that bigger structure. And we're now you know where we are. I've had to go through all that because I was talking to my dear wife who helps put this PowerPoint together. And she helped me see, if you just put number three up there, that's going to need some explanation. So it's like starting a book at page 57. So we're starting on number three. It's a love that treasures like Jesus. That's verses 28 to 31. Let's break that down now into its subsections. First of all, 
by valuing marital oneness with our wives. Men, this is to you, and we need to own up to it. Can I just give you a little footnote? I'll say more about this next week. I understand that this is Paul talking to husbands, and if you're not a husband, you can say, what does this have to do with me? Just as when Paul talked to wives, you can say, what does this have to do with me if I'm not a wife? In a few weeks, we're going to have a whole sermon to children in chapter 6, verse 1, and you get to all hear that, but it's going to be to the kids. You say, what, what value does it have for me to hear a sermon that's targeting someone and a group that, that I'm not a part of? Well, it lets you understand, it lets you pray, it lets you know what's going on to the, to the people that you, you know who are in these roles. Super important to know how to pray for them. Super important to know what God expects for them so that you can hold them accountable as they pursue their own obedience. So I hope you always know, because you're not exactly in the target zone of a passage doesn't mean that there's not things to understand and apply for you as well, right? So let's look at, by valuing marital oneness with our wives, verse 28. So husbands, stop right there. So husbands, what is that talking about? Well, if you go back up in verses 26 and 27, he was talking specifically about Jesus giving himself up for his bride, the church. He sanctifies her in verse 26. He cleanses her by the washing of water with the word, verse 26. He, his, the goal is to present the church to himself in, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's Christ in the church, Christ in the church, Christ in the church. And you'd be saying, well, that's about the gospel. And you would be right, but not complete. Because then in verse 28, he says, so, or likewise, husbands, so all that he says about Christ, he intends for husbands to emulate, to come back to, to participate in the example. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. Now, can I admit with you at first reading, this is unexpected and even a little odd. Love your wife, men, like you do your own body. That's what he says. What does that mean? I mean, do we really love our bodies? I'd like to be 6'5". Are you laughing with me or at me? I would like to be handsome and thinner and faster and browner in the hair. And I mean, what does it mean? There's things I don't enjoy about this aging tent that I get to live in until I see glory. What does that mean? You ought to love your wife as you love your own body. What if I don't love my body? Well, hang on a second. Notice the structure of what Paul says here in verses 28 and 29. First, he gives the ought to... And then he gives the reason behind the ought to. Verse 28, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. But then he says, the ought to, you ought to do that because he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. This goes back to our analogy, our reciprocating analogy. They go back and forth. They, they borrow from each other meaning and illustration, marriage and the gospel. So in order to grasp what Paul is saying here to the husbands, we need to look ahead to the following verses. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body, the end of 29 and verse, verse, 
30. You love your wife just as Christ loves his bride because we are members of Christ's body. Ah, that's interesting. Then verse 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. If you're one flesh and you're loving your wife, you're loving yourself. And if you love yourself, it includes your wife. Incredible solidarity. So incredible that he says, this mystery is great in verse 32. Christ loves his body. That's the illustration, the church. God has made the marital union so close, so intimate that the two become one. Those are the two pillars that we have to understand this, this interesting discussion about loving yourself. His point's simple. The one flesh union between husband and wife means that in a mysterious way, they are now one. Solidarity. So when a husband cares for his wife, he's caring for himself because they are one. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. He's not saying shoulds and woulds. He's saying this is what you're doing. You need to know that there's a subterranean reality, whether you see it or not, in how you respond, how you love, how you care for your wife. That'll make more sense as we go along here. Verse 29 is really the, the key to the whole passage. For, he's explaining to us, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Now, I know what you're thinking, because I, I thought it the first time I read it too. No one ever hated his own flesh. And you say, well, well I know people who hate themselves. I may have hated, said I hate myself or thought I hated myself for a while. How, how does that work out? Well, it's really, if you drill down back to Piper's quote, it's not so much the hate as much as it is we hate how life has treated us or how others are treating us. There's an understood reality that every person, though, intuitively loves or looks after themselves. Yes, there are some more attuned to self-care than others. But the fact that we are naturally inclined to take care of ourselves should be obvious. I was hungry last night. You know what I did? I ate. I was thirsty between the services. You know what I did? I drank some water. I felt a need and I did something about it because it was me that had the need. We naturally eat and hydrate and make choices that benefit ourselves and that is a universal inclination. We make choices that benefit ourselves. I... Uh, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. Isn't that how every story starts? You know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. We, we actually didn't. And uh, I, I didn't know until much later in my life, my parents did such an amazing job of kind of hiding that from us, how little we had and, until I started realizing people around me more than I, I had when I was younger. But every now and then, we'd have a little extra money and mom would take us to the store and we would get a choice. This, I, I still remember this. My heart actually is racing a bit thinking about this 
feeling and moment. Footnote. How are grocery stores designed? What is the very last thing you see? A wall of candy. And if you're five years old, it extends way above your head, especially if you're my stature. Well, I remember countless times, you know, mom, can I know? Mom, can I know? Mom, can I know? And every now and then, she would say to the kids, today you get to choose a candy bar. You get to choose some candy. And I remember the paralysis of analysis, just like, and then, then it was instantly from gratefulness to presumption, like, just one? I like everything on this wall. What are you thinking about? Now, I know it's not a wall. It's just shelves, but it's a wall when you're five. And I, but I had a choice. And you know what I did? I chose what I liked best. We do what's best for us intuitively. Interesting observation. I don't know if you noticed that in verse 28, he says, talks about love of bodies. And in verse 20, 29, he uses love of flesh. This is soma and sarks. There's a massive debate about what the, the, the uh, overlap and the differences between this. I think it's irrelevant. He's just being comprehensive. So, soma and sarks, your body and your flesh are the same thing functionally here. It's you, what makes up you. So the passage really hangs on two verbs. You see them? Nourishes and cherishes. He who loves his own wife loves himself. What does that look like? He nourishes and cherishes himself. Nourish and cherish. This means that each person here and then Every husband is to do everything to take care of his wife with the same vigor as he would use to take care of himself. Let's break that down, nourish. Interesting word, nourish. It's used in Ephesians 6, 4. And the translation is, is interesting to me. In Ephesians 6, 4, we'll come back to this because he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up is literally nourish them. Provide for them. There's your synonym, provide, provision. Nourishes, provides for. It speaks of provision. It means to give what is needed. Husbands, what kind of provider are we to our wives? Now this has a lot of dimensions. We're gonna, next week is going to be all practical applications, so you can expect to hear some of this again. Are you providing for her and your family physically and fiscally? If there's a need for more money, are you the one who says, I'll get the extra job, I'll work extra hours? Are you the one that says no to your desires to meet your family's needs, your wife's needs? Are you providing for her? One of the first things that Kim and I do when we're doing premarital is we, we ask the husband, what, 
Are you ready to provide for this wife? Well, we're both going to work for 10 years. What if, what if she gets pregnant immediately and is overwhelmingly sick and bedridden, which we've had women in our church experience because of sickness, and then it all leans on you. Are you ready to provide for your family? If you're not, we need to ask some harder questions. Are you nourishing and providing for her? How about emotionally? Men, are we giving emotional support to our wives? Do we know what makes them happy, what makes them sad? What brings them joy, what brings them distress? Do we know if we are a part of those joys and distresses? Spiritually, are you providing for her with time in the Word, with time in prayer, with time reading books, with time discussing what you're reading, what you're hearing, the sermons you're experiencing? Are, are you providing for her spiritually? And are, for, are you, this is a strange thing to ask. Are you providing for her eschatologically? You say, what does that mean? Knowing that one day she will meet the Lord Jesus Christ and his expectation is that she loves the Lord better because she was married to you and me. Are you nourishing her? Which is another word for giving her what she really needs. Which means you know it and you have a plan to meet it. That's the easy part. Second word, cherish. You could translate that treasure. I'm going to read you out of my Greek dictionary. Impart warmth, particularly the warmth of a nursing mother to her infant. Cherish, comfort, tenderly care for. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that uses this word. Paul says, we prove to be gentle among you. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother, here's our word, tenderly cares, cherishes for her own children. Sounds like a feminine characteristic, doesn't it? No, no. The Holy Spirit through Paul says, that's the characteristic of cherishing and treasuring that a man, a husband should have for his wife. What does that mean practically? Next week, deeper dive. But for now, does that mean that you pay attention to her? It should. Men, do we pay attention to our wives? Do you talk with her and share what's going on in your life? And listen to her and what's going on in hers. I told you before, the greatest personality shock I had when I got married was communication. I thought I was a pretty good communicator. I was a pastor. I did it for a living. I would come home, busy day at ministry, busy day at the office, busy day at church, studying, counseling, meetings. And Kim would say, how was your day? And I would say, it was great. Thinking that was exceptional communication. Of all, remember the candy, like all the choices, of all the panoply of words I could have used. I said, great. I clearly communicated to you about my day. I've had bad days. I didn't say bad. I've had okay days. I didn't say okay. How was that? It was great. Conversation done. 
That's not what Kim means or meant. We're talking past tense. Meant when she uh, says that from books I've read. No, when Kim asks me, and she does often, how was your day? She means, what'd you do? Who'd you meet with? Now, outside of a counseling confidential, what'd you talk about? Where'd you go to lunch? What'd you eat? What'd you talk about? Where'd you go? And in my mind, I'm thinking, I've already lived that day once. And there is no reason to go back. It's gone. There's nothing to recapture there. She loves me and she wants to know about it. Then I say, how was your day? And what I want to hear was, it was great. (laughs) But what I get was, what she ate, who she talked to, what they talked about. It's wonderful. (laughs) Or so it's supposed to be. So, (laughs) no, we've grown a lot in that. Let, Let me just tell you that communication is one of the significant ways, men, that we we care for and cherish our wives. Talk to and listen to. Do you know her hopes? Do you know her fears? Do you understand her goals? Do you bear her burdens? Man, if we ask each other today, what are your wife's top three prayer requests? Would you know? That's treasuring. How do we do that? Huh. Look at the next phrase, as Jesus does the church, by emulating oneness with the church, Christ's oneness with the church. We imitate his oneness with his bride, the church. Let her be by emulating Christ's oneness with the church. So you nourish her and you cherish her. How? (laughs) Just as Christ also does the church. What kind of standard is that? Then he explains, because we are members of his body, back to that solidarity. He who loves his wife loves himself because we're one in flesh, one in solidarity, just as Christ is with his church. Husbands are then to care for their wives as Jesus cares for his people. There is no higher standard. Where does this come from? Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Then he says, so shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. That's, I'll keep it children rated here. What he's saying is that your violation of your marital fidelity in going into a prostitute, that image is how intimate we are with Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. To sum up, the husband is one flesh with his wife. The church is one body with Christ. Consequently, when the husband cherishes and nourishes his wife, he cherishes and nourishes himself. And when he cherishes, Christ cherishes and nourishes the church, he's cherishing and nourishing himself himself. My wife is not my roommate. We are one, one with each other. You say, well, that's a little mysterious to me, which is why he goes, thirdly, let her see. It's a love that treasures like Jesus, 
by mastering the theology of marital oneness. Mastering the theology. I thought a lot about how to phrase that, and I, I think that probably captures the best. You need to be experts and masters at the theology of marriage. So he goes back to Genesis in verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's a quote from Genesis 2. Let me give you the full paragraph of what Moses records there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. We talked about this at the very first of the series. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, which is just incredible. After each day, this is before the fall. This is before sin enters the world. God creates a whole day, evening, morning. It was good. Behold, it was good. God saw that it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. Then on the sixth day, he says, it is not good. And sin is not in the world yet. What does he mean? It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make, God says, a helper suitable for him. What does that mean? Well, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever he called, the man called a living creature. That was his name. Man, the man, Adam, gave names to all the cattle and to the birds, the sky, every beast of the field. Why is this in here? Because the last phrase, but for Adam, there was not a helper suitable for him. The implication is that God brings by, you know, the buck and the doe, the bull and the cow, the male and the female, all these animals. And he names them, names them, names them. And he's going, you know, male, female, male, female, male, female. And he looks and says, male, me. Male, female, male, female, male, female, male, me. And he realizes something's missing. He comes to that incredible realization, which I think God intended by his naming of the animals. So, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep, this is divine anesthesia, to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs, closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which, we, which he had taken out from the man and brought her to the man. That's verse 22. Verse 23 says, the man said, there is, there is so much between verses 22 and 23. He wakes up and there's Eve. May I say it? In all her glory. He's like, that's not like those animals. Someday in heaven, I wonder if I'll get to ask Adam, dude, I mean, conversations with guys start with dude. Dude, I mean, you wake up and she's there. What, were, what was that like? Well, he'll say, did you read Genesis? Because this is what I said. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's like me. She's a human and a pretty one. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Next verse. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's significant that Jesus, in his answering the Pharisees about 
divorce. They press him on divorce. Listen to what he does. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus had finished these words. He departed from Galilee, came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him. He healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read he who created them from the beginning, created them, quoting Genesis, male and female, and said, Matthew 19, 5, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, Jesus says. Now he editorializes. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The point I want you to see from this is that in talking about marriage, the Lord Jesus went back to Genesis. He went back to the Genesis account. <laughs> do, you, do you believe in the factual historicity of Genesis 1, 2, and 3? There was really a man named Adam, really a woman named Eve, and those were really our first parents? Jesus did. And Jesus never lies. That's exactly what Paul does in our text in verse 31. He goes back to Genesis. He says, you don't understand. When God gave Eve to Adam, husbands, all of us, the two became one flesh. That's talking more than sexual intimacy. It's talking about their oneness that parallels Christ's oneness to the church. You think as a couple. You act as a couple. You live as a couple. Answer questions as a couple. You tackle problems and burdens and trials as, as, as a couple. So Genesis 1 to 3 chronicle the reality that when sin entered the world, it destroyed the harmony of marriage. This did... did, did let me say it this way. Genesis 1 to 3 did not, doesn't show that headship and submission were invented after the sin, after the fall. Headship and submission were a part of the design. Their pollution was a part of the fall. It destroyed the harmony of marriage. This did so by introducing pollutants, sin into headship and into submission. It distorted the man's humble, uh, intended humble and loving headship, giving him the temptation to either be a dominator or lazy, indifferent husband. It distorted the woman's intelligent, willing submission into manipulation on one side. Some women have brazen insubordination on the other. Said another way, sin did not invent headship and submission. It wrecked and distorted them, and it still does today. So when a husband leads like Christ and a wife follows like believers or to follow Christ, we get a glimpse, listen to this, we get a glimpse of what it looks like for the curse to be reversed. But men, husbands, gentlemen, this means we have some work to do in becoming experts in the theology of marriage. 
the narrative of narratives that include and talk about marriage, the biblical theology of marriage, is so in so as to effectively lead the way God desires us to, and to know how Christ leads the church so we can emulate that in specific ways. A couple takeaways. Next week is going to be all takeaways, by the way, for the men. So just this is just a couple to chew on for the week, at least that I'm chewing on. Number one, ask two questions of myself. Do I understand the theology and implications of the creation account on my marriage? Do I understand the theology and implications of the creation account on my marriage? Paul is saying, I'm building my entire application on this theology. Do you, can you meet me in Genesis and remember the narrative and understand the theology? Number two, and this is just a primer for next week. Can I identify, can I identify specific ways I can nourish and cherish my wife? Can I identify specific ways I can nourish, provide for, cherish, treasure my wife? Footnote. Single men, not yet married or unmarried. If you want to be married, are you learning now the Philippians 2 application, have this attitude that was in Christ where you put others' preferences and others' needs ahead of yourself. That is incredible training for marriage. Let me remind us all, okay? <laughs> if we did not need these exhortations, they would not be recorded in the Scriptures. The reason that the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul to say these things is he knew we weren't doing them like we should. So it's easy for all of us, myself included, to think, well, I'm, I mean, I'm sure the other guys are doing this better than me, but I'm kind of the outlier. I'm the knucklehead. No, we're all knuckleheads. I'm the president of the Knuckleheads Married to Godly Women Club. You're welcome to join. Cards are free. We all need correction, men. We all need grace. We all need empowerment by the Spirit of God. And I tell you that to say it's easy just for these passages, when we're talking about the women, the same thing, the wives, the same thing, the husbands now, this stuff piles on you and you just feel like, I'm useless. I'm looking at my notes early this morning thinking, I wish the rapture would happen in the next hour so that I wouldn't have to say these things because my wife hears them. But I thank God for her grace. I thank God for her forgiveness. That's why all of us submit to one another in the fear of Christ, verse 21. We're merciful and gracious and understanding and hopeful and helpful to move each other into a better place of obedience before the Lord, right? Let's not... Don't beat yourself up, find the grace, but find the correction. And don't beat your spouse up, but provide the grace and help with the correction. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I, I'm so convicted again. It's hard to preach this. I had to preach it twice today. 
Thank you, though, for your grace. Thank you for Kim's forgiveness and her understanding. I'm grateful for marriage. I'm grateful for the men and the husbands that you put in this body. All of us need help. All of us need correction. But we're grateful to hear from your word and grateful you care enough, enough about us to instruct us and to shepherd us. None of us meet the standard, but how thankful we are that our Lord Jesus did and provides forgiveness for us, forgiveness for us for sins and righteousness for us that we could never earn. So give us greater expertise in the gospel so that we'll have greater application of love for our wives and our marriage. Because of Jesus, we pray. Amen.